0: Hi there, pinball fans. It's your favorite clown, Krusty, and you're listening to Norman Shaggy on the TopCast, the greatest pinball show ever made. Uh, can I get my money now? I'm such a whore. You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com TopCast.
1: Well, welcome all you pinball fans, this is TopCast here, Shaggy running TopCast for you, live today and we've got a very, very special guest, somebody that I've been trying to get on the show for quite some time and have had a hard time getting them on, mostly because I think it's in the whole thing and he just couldn't do it, but uh, due to some circumstances he has gotten his hands untied so to speak. And things have changed a little bit in the pinball world, at least for him and probably for a lot of us in the last uh, week or so. And we hope to talk to him about that. So uh, right now, let's get running.
0: Special guest. Special guest. Special guest. Special guest.
1: All right, I'd like to welcome Keith Johnson to TopCast today. And we're going to be calling Keith up right now, but Keith has been, uh, first he actually worked at uh, Williams Valley in the late 1990s, and um, his name has been uh, associated with Revenge from Mars, though I'm sure he did some other work there, and we're going to talk to him about that, but that's the most notable thing that comes up on the pinball database is his work on Revenge from Mars, and then, of course, the pinball division of Williams closed in 1999, and then he slid over to Stern Pinball. And started working on some games like Striker Extreme, Sharky Shootout, High Roller Casino, Austin Powers. Of course, Simpsons Pinball Party, Lord of the Rings, Elvis, World Poker Tour, Wheel of Fortune. And um, he's had a couple other games that they've been working on too that we'll talk about some newer games in that. But anyways, we're going to give Keith a call right now.
2: Hello. Keith, it's Clay. Hey, how are you doing? Can you hear me okay? Yep, I can hear you fine.
1: Okay, so you ready? I think so. Alrighty, um, so let's talk about how you got into pinball, like what your first memories of it and your whole, you know, how you came down this winding, strange path.
2: Well, uh, I always played pinball as a kid. Um, I remember in the In the 70s, going to the boardwalk during the summer um, on the East Coast. I'm from D.C. So we'd go to like Rehoboth Beach, Ocean City, Maryland, that kind of stuff. And um, Before there were too many video games out, uh, you know, I'd always go up to the pinball games and play them for a little bit. And uh, that kind of changed once video games started coming into vogue. And I played a lot of video games for a long time, you know, Space Invaders, Galaxia, and all those kinds of things. So I was really more of a video game player for a long time, and then as the video game models started switching to more of a, um, just try to get the next quarter, you know, keep the game going, that kind of thing, um, I kind of found myself going back to pinball around college. And college is when I started playing, like, really seriously, and, you know, eventually started going to tournaments and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, you're a pretty good player, right?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm one of the better ones, probably, Yeah. (laughs) Okay, and um,
1: so what school did you go to, and what what did you major in?
2: Uh, Virginia Tech. I studied computer science.
1: Did you know Duncan Brown at the time?
2: Um, I didn't really know Duncan until later, not until uh, not until Williams. Okay, but I mean, I knew that um, I knew he was originally from Charlottesville and stuff. Yeah.
1: And um, what uh, what was your first job out of college?
2: Um, I worked at a little company called Advanced Systems. They were uh they were basically Microsoft shop, you know, do things like Access and Excel and custom solutions for, you know, various size businesses and that kind of thing. And what so were did a lot of uh Microsoft work and then um from there I went to a company called Datatel which specializes in uh in software for um uh, colleges. You know, running their uh you know, like class scheduling or you know, um, financial aid stuff and things like that. Basically, anything that a college needs to to work, that you know, that company did.
1: And so, how did you get how did you get your foot in the door at Williams Valley?
2: Um, honestly, you know, I'm sure a lot of it was, uh, you know, I've been active on RGP for a long time, you know, over 16 years. Um, so you know, I, I. At one time or another, I've had contact, you know, with all kinds of people, you know, that even, you know, before they worked there, after they worked there, you know, whichever. Um, and then a lot of us, you know, we started hanging out on uh, an IRC channel, you know, a lot of uh, pinball enthusiasts. And um, at one point, Larry made a comment on IRC that, uh, um, about looking for people, and and I just asked him, you know, hey, you know, that might be interested. That was late 97 sometime. So I went over to Williams during Expo 97 and uh, met with a bunch of people and, you know, talked and said, oh, okay, um, I'm definitely interested. It was mostly for slots because there weren't any pinball openings at the time.
1: So you started...
2: ...to so me, you know, all the kinds of slot machines that they were working on. I hadn't really been to Vegas or anywhere gambling in quite a while, so I didn't know what the state of slot machine development and that kind of thing. So it, it was very intriguing to me. You know, there uh, it looked like it would be fun to you know develop slot machines the way they were doing them. Um, you know, things that aren't just you know pull the lever and hope for symbols to come up. Um, you know, the bonus game aspect you know really appealed to me.
1: So you were working on you were working on this in the spinning reel division, working on the dotmation slots. Then,
2: yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah, I um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't do anything about the job until uh ninety eight I wanted to see what the review of my current job would be and if they pay me more money and that kind of thing and uh I wasn't really satisfied with what they offered me so I eventually um talked to Larry again it's like you know look I'm interested in coming over to williams and um so at the end of march nineteen ninety eight I was up there
1: and what uh, what slots did you work on there?
2: Um, neither of them were produced. I was only in slots for probably about six months. Um, I worked on a, uh, double winning streak slot machine, which is, uh, same as winning streak, but, um, the goal was to get the symbols both the same, the same in both the dot game and the base game, and also to have, if winning streaks, winning streaks would be wild anywhere, but if they're on the line, they'd score double. So... So I uh basically did a math sheet for that and got it working. And um and then uh I was also working with uh Scott Silmiani on Five Line Mermaids Gold.
1: Now did either of those games ever get released? Because I've never seen those two.
2: No, neither of those were released to my knowledge. Hmm. Yeah, because I the double winning streak one was gonna be for Delaware only because of um the settlement of the Telnus patent with IGT back then. Right. So basically, we weren't allowed, Williams wasn't allowed to do anything virtual real wise except for Delaware, because Delaware required a certain number. They, they had like a cap on the percentage that any one company could, you know, penetrate the market or something like that. So part of the deal with IGT was okay, we can use, you know, the patent in and delaware machines only so so double wedding streak you know wouldn't have wouldn't have made it anywhere else other than delaware until you know the patent expired or whatever
1: it, just for the sake of our listeners the TelNIS patent basically said if if you had a reel and it had eleven symbols on it that basically meant that there was twenty two stops between you know blanks and symbols and you could divide this, the the reel into twenty two pieces of pie, essentially. But the Telnis patent said, okay, well, instead of twenty two pieces of pie, even though there's only eleven symbols on there, maybe you could divide it into seventy two stops, and then you could have much much longer odds. Mm-hmm. You know, but but IGT had a patent on that. So, and there actually the the gaming commissions had problems with this whole thing because you know dividing. Uh, um, you know, the, the the reel into more slices than there were symbols was kind of in you know intrinsically kind of wrong in a lot of ways.
2: Well, yeah, Vegas has a lot of rules in terms of what players perceive and what um and what actually needs to happen. Like for example, if you represent something as a deck of cards in Vegas, then it literally has to be a straight up deck of cards. If you represent something as a die or dice. Then they have to be straight up, you know, one in six chances. Um, that wasn't, they, you know, they got away with that with, uh, spinning real stuff in order to, you know, make better payouts and, and that kind of thing. But there were certain rules. Uh, the, the most, the rule I, re- I remember specifically is that one, one symbol could not appear more than six times as often as an adjacent symbol. Hmm. So, like, if you, you know, if you see mega bucks above or below the line, then then if you see that like twelve times then two times, you have to see it on the line, you know that kind of thing.
1: Hmm. So, when you were uh, you got over to the pinball division, was this because of Pinball Two Thousand?
2: Partially, what um. What happened was that, you know, I got there and, you know, I saw everything that was going on with the development of Pinball two thousand. Um, and uh, you know, got got to be good friends with those guys obviously. I I knew a lot of people before, you know, I even started there, which kinda helped. I mean, I had met uh Lewis, Lyman, Greg, um I'm sure a bunch of other people um, before uh before they had started in the pinball industry
1: just to be clear that that's just just to be clear that's Lewis Kosiar, uh Lyman Sheets and what Greg Dunlop?
2: Greg, Greg Dunlap. yeah. Okay.
1: I just want to be clear for people.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, sorry, oh,
1: sorry, sorry to sorry to interrupt.
2: No, no, no problem. Um, so uh what happened was that there was a big restructuring um that summer of 98. Um, you know, basically uh the spinning reel division wasn't going to be under Larry's purview anymore. He was going to solely oversee pinball. Um, So there was kind of a uh, a reorganization of people and um, Lyman asked Larry for me to be on the Revenge for Mars team. And uh, So they offered me the position. And, you know, it's like, you know, it's sink or swim with pinball. You know, there's not really any, uh, you know, there's probably not going, going back to slot machine if you choose this, and I was like, well, I want to do pinball, so, you know, heck yeah, I'm going to take it.
1: So looking back,
2: I up on uh, the Revenge for Mars team and started my pinball career.
1: Looking back on that that decision, was that a good choice or a bad choice?
2: It was a good choice. I mean, working on Revenge for Mars and, you know, seeing what all the guys are working on and, you know, what was coming up down the line. I mean, I absolutely would have made that choice. I mean, I didn't I didn't go to Williams to, to work on saw machines. You know, I went there to work on pinball eventually. So, but I got the chance, you know. I was like, well, yeah, I'll take the chance.
1: Now, um, what was your responsibilities on Revenge for Mars?
2: Um, well, at first, you know, we are just kind of, everyone was messing around, trying to figure out, you know, what was fun, what was doable, what we wanted to see in the game. I mean, we went through a lot of stuff, well, a lot of time when we were just playing around with stuff, trying to see, you know, what was compelling, what was, uh, you know, what you could pull off with a ball or what you could pull off with, you know, the graphics and that kind of thing. Um, so we were playing around with a lot of stuff. Eventually, my responsibilities were, uh, we had like nine modes in the game, three multi-balls, and um we just divvied everything up equally among everyone. At, at first it was just Lyman, Dwight and myself and then eventually Graham West came onto the game team as well. So um, I worked on uh I worked on two modes, Paris and Peril and uh Mars Needs Women. Um, uh, one of the bonus modes too, the the Martian tank thing. And uh and then I did the uh the final mode in the game, the uh, attack of Mars bit
1: now were, were you uh, what language were you programming in on slots, and then what language were you programming in on revenge
2: uh, both of those were c c plus plus
1: oh so slots was c was c also then
2: yeah hmm. yeah the slots was were um, they were making a lo- a lot of use of c plus hmm. plus
1: so was this uh, a language that you were pretty familiar with before you came to williams valley
2: yeah yeah, I had done it um, in college and I had done it um, at my previous job DataTel, tell and uh, to uh, to a lesser extent at my job before that advanced Systems. But, uh, yeah, I was pretty familiar with it. Okay.
1: Uh, on about, you know, what, what you were, when you got done with revenge, what was your responsibilities? Were you on, were you on star Wars or were you on, you know, playboy or were, what, you know, what were you on next?
2: And I were assigned playboy with, uh, with uh Pete and Scott. So Pete Petrowski and Scott Solmiani. They were the uh designers of the game and uh Dwight and I were doing software for it. And so haunted house game and uh that was the route we were going down. You know, we actually designed a haunted house and we're moving between rooms and stuff like that. Um, and then later on in the process it got switched over to a Playboy game and so we started changing some stuff around and um, Oh, uh, we basically restarted from scratch, and you know, started uh, trying to come up with some rules for that game. And uh, we hadn't gotten all that far with it. We were about to sign the contract with Playboy, um, I believe, the, the week after um, Expo. When you know, when we shut down on on Monday after that.
1: So, so Playboy was not never playable.
2: It was never what
1: Playboy never became playable.
2: I mean, there were some rules in it, but there really weren't that many. I mean, there were some stand-up targets that did some stuff, and I had just finished. Uh, I just finished the the start of a multi-ball, um, right right before uh, you know, took a couple days off for Expo, and then uh, then that was that.
1: Uh, were any of the graphics done for Playboy?
2: Not really. I mean, Scott had uh, been messing around with some stuff himself, um, and so we got some things into the game. We kind of got, like, we had this calendar rule where you'd hit targets and fill in letters of each, um, of each, uh, you know, month, you know, for the year, you know, January, February, March, all that stuff. You know, the goal being you you light up the, the entire month and then eventually, you know, depending on how many you lit up, you'd start, you know, kind of a, almost like a multi-ball madness kind of thing. I mean, that rule never really got fleshed out, you know, but we did have things, we did, you know, spell out the months and have lights light up and that kind of thing.
1: Is there any version of the haunted house game that survived?
2: Well, there was uh, there was some code checked into the you know checked into the version control, but um, it didn't uh, it didn't do a whole lot. So I'm, I'm sure there's code around, and you know, the Wayne may even have it for all I know. But um, you know, it, there, there wasn't a whole lot to it at the time.
1: And did you feel that that was a A pretty good theme that that was going to work well with the Pinball 2000 platform? and
2: was looking forward to, um, at least in game design, was uh, looking forward to the Haunted House game. I mean, we just figured there's so much we could do, you know, having all these different rooms that you could go through and having different things happen in each room. Um, And just, you know, having a spooky theme in general. Um, Everyone was really looking forward to it and then uh, and then interest waned significantly after it became the playboy game.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean there's a lot you could do with the playboy theme too.
2: No, sure, sure. We just uh we just never got to the point where, you know, it had been fully flushed out so to speak, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, there could be some great home roms for the playboy one.
2: Oh, uh, no doubt. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, anyway, so when um after the Expo 1999 when uh, you know, when Monday rolled around what were you at work when that
2: yeah I mean I uh I come in a little bit later I usually get there around 10 or so and so I got there and uh you know I saw I saw Greg at work first and I I mentioned something to him and he's like uh oh you should be downstairs and I was like oh really what's going on I was like you should be downstairs so I started heading back, and then everyone else was coming back from the meeting. And you know, I found out pretty quickly after that that Pinball was being shut down, and you know, that was that.
1: <laughs> well, when, I mean, did you had did you see this train wreck coming at all?
2: No, I I didn't personally. I mean, there had always been gloom and doom talk around the office, but after uh, after Revenge and uh, Star Wars seemed to be doing pretty well. We we're like, oh, okay, you know, we can definitely make something of this. Um, so some people were still down, some people were still up uh you know, I was one of the people that was looking forward to it um i think uh I think Wizard blocks would have been a pretty good game, and i think uh and I think playboy would have been it wouldn't have, probably wouldn't have been as good as Wizard blocks, but it would be a game that um those two games would have been more pinball than than what the uh the previous two games i think were I, like the biggest complaints of the previous two games were that, you know, all you all you had to do to do anything was, you know, shoot up the middle. But that was on purpose and and I think it was the right decision to get, you know, people that weren't very good at pinball, you know, further into the game and see things happen and stuff like that. Um, the the next two games probably would have gotten away from that to some extent. And uh you know, would have been they would have been more pinball y than just um, shooting up the middle. Mm -hmm. Whether it was the right direction to go or not, um, you know, I'm not really sure, and, you know, we won't really know how they would have done comparatively.
1: Now, were you, um, were you involved, like, in the initial meetings with, uh, you know, how Pinball 2000 was, had, like, two different uh, limbs of the tree, so to speak, where you had, you know, you had Pat and Gomez, and then you had Papa Duke. I mean, were you, did you Were you in on any of those meetings? What was your feeling on that?
2: Oh, that stuff had pretty much been decided before I got there. Um, after I got there, uh, Pat and George had already demonstrated the um, the hollow pen thing, and, and in fact, one of the first things I saw when I got there was, was Cameron messing around with the play field and, and hitting this thing, hitting this, you know, basically hitting this spaceship in the in the middle of the screen. And, um, you know, I was, like, instantly blown away with, you know, all the possibilities, all the things that you could, uh, you know, that you could do as a result. So I was really excited when I saw it. I mean, I I didn't know anything like that was in the works. And uh, when I got there, it was just like, oh man, this is really cool.
1: And were you, like, sworn to secrecy type thing?
2: No. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And did you production?
2: Yes, I did.
1: And and what what you know? How did you feel that the crowd reacted to to the whole game concept?
2: Um, I think everyone was really, I, I think everyone was really excited about it. Everyone was like, you know, I, everyone had a good time with it. I mean, it, no one had really seen anything like it. You know, you're playing a pinball and you're hitting these virtual Martians and stuff like that. I mean, I think that you know the game wasn't finished at the time. You know, I know that we had Paris and Peril done. We probably had Alien Abduction done. Um, I think we had the uh the Barn Mode done. Um, so, I mean, there were definitely a number of things that people could see and experience. Um, and I think that I think people were pretty excited with what they saw for the most part. Hmm.
1: So then, in on uh, that that Monday morning of you know in October nineteen ninety nine, you know after they closed, I mean, how did you get? You know, the, the pinball division was shut down essentially. Um, how did you get over to Stern? I mean, how did how did that transition work?
2: Um. Well, again, um, you know, most of us were still hanging out on. IRC and stuff like that, and Lonnie started showing up, and I'd met Lonnie. I originally met Lonnie probably back in IFPA 3 in 1993, the first time I met him. And uh and I'd seen him, you know, at expos and stuff like that, and, you know, talked to him. Um, so, you know, I just basically asked him if there were any positions possibly available at Stern, and you know, probably the next week I was in his office. We talked for about three or four hours, I think. And uh, I can't remember if I talked to Gary that same day or if it was a later day. But um, but basically, you know, I talked to, to Lonnie and Gary and, you know, probably had a job offer within a week or so. At the same time, I've been talking to Midway because everyone in pinball was talking with Midway. And I had a job offer from them as well that I turned down and, to go work at Stern. So.
1: Were you the first Williams guy to, to go to Stern?
2: I was probably the first person to interview. Um, Dwight started about a week before I did because I went on the the Williams trip to Disney World. You know, the celebration for getting revenge and Star Wars done. That that had already been decided and planned and paid for before the uh, shutdown. So, so we went for the week, uh, the last week, and it was a week right after Thanksgiving, as I recall. And so I started at uh, Stern on the Monday after we got back from that trip. Hmm.
1: And how was the, you know, the corporate environment different at Stern compared to Williams? Um, you know, the culture as it may be.
2: Well, at Stern everything I I think that the biggest joke that Dwight and I had for a long time was that um every day we'd see something that made us shake our heads and wonder how they were still in business. Um, it was uh, it was just amazing that how how things came together and, and got designed and you know how things were you know kind of like pushed in at the last minute and um, I don't know it was just it was just remarkable that that the engineering that occurred at the last minute and, you know, actually made it into a finished game. And I don't know, things just weren't as structured and as, uh, as, uh, planned out, I think, as they were at Williams.
1: Can you give me an example of what, you know, one of the things you shook your head at?
2: Oh, man, it's such a long time ago. I don't, I don't even remember offhand. I'd have to think about it a little bit. Um, and maybe Dwight remembers better than I do. But, uh, I don't know, there was um right when we first got there and they were working on Striker Extreme, they uh there was an upper flipper on the game. But but there was no absolutely no feet to it. It's like if you remember that you shoot the goal and then and then there's that pop up the middle that the goal set into and that you could shoot. Uh, it came all the way back to the lower left flipper. Um and they are like, well, there's no feed on the upper flipper. The the ball should come from the goal or the popper up the middle to the upper left flipper so that something feeds it and you have an opportunity to actually, you know, make that side ramp shot that you've, you know, put all this money in put all this money in. Yeah. So and that change actually and you know is what wound up shipping. Um if it didn't there was definitely not as much thought put into some things i think as uh as it was a turn but they didn't uh, uh Williams, but they didn't have as much time to think about certain things either because they were always getting the they're always getting the next game they're always getting the game done and then they're always working on the next game and you know it seems like that what what happened most of the time and one of my biggest complaints about the company was that um the mechanical department didn't get everything fully done until production um so we're like you know working with you know kind of half-assed hardware for the most part and uh you know so we we know how things are supposed to wind up and hopefully they wind up working correctly but for the most part um you know we just didn't have any time with uh with the final product and, well, you know is where that is ultimately one of the biggest problems the company has i think
1: well, why were, the, why were the time schedules so much more compressed at Stern compared to Bally Williams?
2: Not as many people, for one thing. I mean, you didn't have all the different design teams or, you know, whatever. I mean, and when, when you have to get things done, when there's fires to be put out, everyone has to kind of drop what they're doing and, and get the game to work, get the game that's about to go into production to work and to... Uh, you know, be buildable and and be fun, and and then you can go back and into what you were working on, and you know whether it's the next game or the game after that or whatever. Um, it just you know too many things happened where where things had to be dropped and you had to get going on on the current project, and then you could go back and and work on you know what you're doing again.
1: So it's just mostly. The- a lack of resources is really what you're saying. Just they didn't have as many people on, you know, or he couldn't throw as much money. Thing by far, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, well, that's you know, I guess that's the kind of part of the beauty of the whole thing, huh?
2: <laughs> I suppose. Yeah.
1: So, what would what did you end up doing on Striker Extreme?
2: I finished up some dot work on that game. Um, I believe it was. I believe Orin did most of the dot work. Um, he was uh doing a contract for um for uh Stern at the time. And I think his uh his number of hours had been used up and Dwight and I got hired so I was uh I was putting in some some additional display effects or tweaking some ones that Lonnie needed tweaking and that kind of thing. So so that's basically that's basically my contribution to the Striker Extreme was, you know, finishing up that work.
1: So you went from programming in, in C++ at Williams Valley in both the slot and on Revenge, but now you're doing 6809 assembly language, right? So was that a hard transition? Close that? So you're doing, basically at Bally Williams you're doing C++ programming. Now you're doing 6809 assembly language. Was that a tough transition?
2: It wasn't too bad, I mean, I had seen some code when I was at Williams um, and i I grew up with an Apple II personally, so you know I had a decent feel for sixty five oh two um, so you know it wasn't it wasn't horrible i you know and I pick up stuff pretty quick i mean you know, even though I hadn't really written much sixty eight o nine you know before I started at stern, um, I picked it up pretty quick and got you know got high roller casino done within a year um, I mean I probably started it six months after I started at stern and then the game went into production the uh you know at the uh, end of the year
1: now did you work on Sharky's shootout also
2: yeah again that was mostly um doing dot work on that game no. uh, um Dwight um had been working on kind of like williamizing a bunch of the stern operating system you know making it more like uh... making basically making concepts of game development more like they you know we remembered at at williams so he was doing a bunch of that stuff and and i did a couple things I i think i wrote the uh... the sound request system um, you know while he was doing some other things and uh... You know, so I helped out with the, the operating system a little bit, and then um, started doing all of the uh, started doing all the dot work for uh, Sharkies. Um, Lonnie was helping a little bit when he needed to, um, and then uh, and then after finished up with Sharkies, then um, that I started working on uh, High Roller.
1: A roller, so this was really the first game that you were at from the ground and, and got a large influence on?
2: Yeah, I would say that, yeah.
1: And how much, I mean, what, what were your responsibilities on High Roller Casino?
2: Well, it was basically, um, you know, with uh, some input from John Norris, I mean, I basically designed all the rules from the game and... Um, you know it was responsible for programming all the rules all the choreography all the devices um, i mean that game that game had three different devices on it that you know again you know it's it's, it's kind of a sixty eight oh nine semi newbie it was uh, it was a bit of a challenge to get everything going you had the roulette wheel you had the uh, stepper motor ramp and you had the uh, auxiliary display in the slot machine. And so I got all three of those things working and, you know, it just it came together pretty well. There was, there were a lot of problems with it. Um, There wasn't any really debugging in the system at all. There, I mean, the only thing you could kind of do was, was maybe print something out to the dot matrix display, assuming it didn't fail in the wrong place. So... One of the things I did um, after hardcore was done is I started rewriting a lot of the operating system to, to get rid of a bunch of inefficiencies and um, put in some actual helpful debugging stuff. And um, Game development was a lot smoother after that, I think.
1: So were you basically trying to Williamsize these guys? I mean, it sounds like you guys were, that was kind of like, you know... I don't know, was it an underground strategy or in everybody who didn't mind this happening or was it, or was there resistance?
2: I don't think there was really resistance. And the this, the main stuff that, that Dwight and I were doing really only affected software. So, um, you know, Lonnie was on board with it. So our, you know, our goal of making game development easier and, and basically, you know, making it easier to make better games, you know, I think, Everyone kinda of had to get on board with that. How could you not? <laughs> right, right.
1: So were you happy with how High Roller Casino came out?
2: Yeah, for the most part. I mean originally when it came out, um, you know, it was there was a lot of stuff that seemed kinda of slow and boggy about it. And that was really one of the main reasons why I decided to go through and try and optimize the operating system. Because uh because we knew everything could run a lot faster. I mean, the the game was doing way too much work in, uh, in interrupt. You know, basically using up all the real time. So just kind of moved a bunch of stuff out of there, and um, and you know freed up freed up time and and also added features like we started getting uh, easy duty cycle of coils and and we got the dimmy lights and you know a bunch of stuff like that and. Um, so the games ran a lot faster, had more features. You know, it was kind of a win-win-win, I guess, in terms of um, kind of getting everything. You know, just getting getting a better development environment, getting the games able to do more, and um, and eventually getting the games to be more fun.
1: Now, when you say duty cycling the coils, you mean they weren't doing that before?
2: Uh, they they could like one or two coils. The way they had it set up, but it wasn't uh there was a very complex and strange way of doing it, so you know we just came up with a way of doing it kind of generically and you know can duty cycle any coil and you know that's the 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 big the thing you have to understand is that that system you know was basically It had basically been written since Laser War days. It, you know, that's when it started out.
1: Yeah, that was their their first game. It was
2: in there, that is basically you know original 6800 code. And as time goes on, you know there was um, you know some 6809 stuff got uh, got added into it. But by and large, the a lot of the code was the same from the initial the initial days of the company.
1: Right, Laser War being the the first game, and actually it was really developed by incredible technologies, not by anybody there at Data East at the time.
2: Yeah, that's correct. You know, Lonnie did most of the work on that game, and eventually obviously came over to, to Data East, Sega Stern, so. Right. Hmm.
1: So now, your next game up was Austin Powers. Uh, what was your responsibilities on that game?
2: Again, there was mostly uh, dot programming on that game. Um. Kind of had fun with it, you know. There was a lot of, uh, I hadn't really had time or had, you know, had much opportunity to to play around too much with uh, display effects and and doing different things with them. I think I think you'll see a a big transformation if you go back and look at games as to what was done with the display on games prior to Austin Powers and then then what was done on Austin Powers and and with games after that um we really had time to, to play around and get um things looking really good and you know I I got a better understanding of the scripting system and you know how to do more advanced effects and that kind of thing. So I mean this is stuff that, you know that that Sega or that um Data East and Sega were doing back when it first came out, but I think at, at some point a lot of the stuff got to be kind of a lost art as uh, people left the company and as, uh, you know, there wasn't much time to work on games. So we started, you know, basically resurrecting the capabilities of the display system. And um, I think Austin, pa- Austin Powers is kind of a leap forward in what had been going on at the time at the company in terms of uh, how the display looked.
1: Now, were you in charge of any of the rules or, or play field layout or any anything of that sort on Austin Powers?
2: No, the play field was all done by, um, by Lonnie and John Borg. Um, you know, they wanted a, uh, Lonnie's big thing was that, you know, they wanted to do, a an Attack from Mars-style play field. You know, I I guess basically a fan, where you had something interesting up the middle of the scene that, you know, you shoot them enough times and, and the modes would start and that kind of thing. So, that was all Lonnie and John, um... I probably wrote the uh, the final mode in that game, the moon based multi ball, as I recall. Um, I haven't played that in so long that you know I don't remember it too well. But uh, I do remember writing that. But for the most part, my responsibilities were just getting the display effects done and taking them out when they weren't approved by uh, by Michael Myers or by Newline or whoever
1: yeah how much of that game i mean you, there was a a lot you could have really done with that game was there was there a lot that was not approved by mike myers for that game
2: there were um there are definitely a bunch of quotes that got ripped out of the game at various points um the things that I remember the most were um were with the display effects like uh the um the bonus x thing was uh was like a lot of vagina taking off her bra, you know, in kind of a silhouette and then the door would open and so, you know, bonus two X or whatever. Um the uh the match animation was the uh was the uh the scene in the tent where I think um where the where the gal was taking was, you know, moving stuff and, and Austin was on the ground, you know, kinda of doggy style and they were taking stuff, you know, it looked like it was coming out of his rear end, I guess, and then eventually he farts and you know the match number comes up after that um, and there was there was a couple other things too uh, I think the other one was uh, mini me actually humping the laser um, we had him doing that, and that got uh you know it's uh i I can't say I'm surprised that well i'm I'm mostly surprised at the uh at the bonus x thing, but the other stuff I'm not too surprised got the axe.
1: Is that stuff still in the ROMs or has it actually been removed
2: it was removed from production roMs
1: do you have like quote home
2: yeah.
1: do you have quote home ROMs for this game
2: they exist I do not have them they do exist though yes they exist
1: they haven't surfaced though so I mean somebody's keeping these pretty under under tight wraps
2: that is correct.
1: Any hints to who may have these so I can go bother them?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're probably not going to get very far with them is my guess. So, um, But, you know, maybe someday they'll show up.
1: I, I'm one of the few people that actually owns an Austin Power, so That's why I was asking.
2: Yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, I've, I've had people ask me about them before. But, uh, you know, I don't have them. And, you know, I don't have an Austin, so I don't have them.
1: How common were quote home roms for uh you know for stern
2: games not very often I mean there was a bunch of stuff that um you know that I wanted to put into poker that um that I never really got around to doing a an official home rom for but um pretty much for the most part there's almost no i think awesome powers is probably the only one that I remember having um, a specific home rom for.
1: All right, yeah, I you know the the whole you know we you were talking about how you're kind of ramping things into this Williams style of of whatever development. I kind of look at at Stern games as like a bell curve. And you know the top of the bell curve is uh of course Simpson's Pinball Party and Lord of the Rings. And then on the left side of the bell curve, you know, you that, you know, further down is Austin Powers and High Roller Casinos and Sharkies. And then on the other side, you know, you got Elvis and World Poker Tour, but you've kinda got this apex, which brings us to, of course, your you know, your the game that you're most most famously associated with and that's uh Simpsons Pinball Party. Uh-huh. And so this this game was like, you know, I mean, talk about getting Stern put on the map and selling a crap load of games. and and I I guess, you know, you're largely the guy responsible for that, right?
2: Um, for the most part, I mean, you know, I, uh, I was working with Joe Balser on the playfield layout, um, and, uh, certainly, you know, I was responsible for getting, um, theming the game and getting, you know, everything, um, you know, getting all the rules into the game, figuring out what characters to use, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I, I was the most familiar with it since I've been, I was a pretty big fan of it at the time. Um, you know, it was certainly starting to wane for me personally, but, um, but, you know, there was a lot of, uh, there's still a lot of fun characters that you can use, you know, and you could still use them today, too, for that matter. Um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily use some of the shows that, that, uh, you know, that have been put out, but, um, but the characters are great.
1: Now... This game, did it take a lot more time for you to develop this game than, say, you know, Austin Powers, for example? I mean, was it, you know, the, because of the depth of the rules or whatever?
2: Well, I'll tell you, you know, a lot of, a lot of the rules have been, you know, were, they were mostly finished um, probably about the time that um, rollercoaster was about to come on the line. In fact, for a long time, Christopher Tycoon. Then Joe Balser left the company, and there was a bunch of uh, there's a bunch of mechanical work that had to be redesigned. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to say that Simpsons didn't, you know, the rules and stuff certainly benefited from that extra time. I mean, you know, I kept working on stuff as long as I had time to do it, and then, you know, eventually started getting all the dots and you know sounds and stuff like that and uh you know we just uh kept going to town as long as we could and i don't think um you know it it definitely was the game that i had the longest to work on but um but most of it was done probably you know it was mostly done in a a, a little bit longer than the normal game time frame i guess um, and then we just, you know, kept tweaking the choreography and, you know, cleaning things up and that kind of thing.
1: Now, there's no, um, there, there's no female voice characters in, uh, in Simpsons. Was that just because you guys had a certain amount of money, um, and, and you could only get one of the voice actors, or what was the reasoning behind that?
2: Um, the reason was, when we, when we negotiated the contract, we had, um, we basically had a you know a certain amount like you said of money to to allocate towards voice talent and the number the number of people that that we had was you know the the magic number was three that was the amount of people we could afford. We could have spent a lot more money to get four and possibly five, but um it just wasn't viable in terms of what we had to pay per game in order to get the extra talent, and even as it was, you know, we've maxed out all the, uh, all the sound roms anyway, so, I mean, anything else that we put in the game would be at the expense of some other stuff that was already in there. So, the thinking was, well, you have to have Homer and you have to have Bart, so that's two of your three right there. You know, that's just not even a question. Um, and all the other, you know, you also get all the other characters that those guys do. Um... And so the, the other choice was just, you know, who do you use for the third person? Is it Harry Shearer? Is it, um Hank Azaria? Because both of those guys do a large number of characters that are fun. Our, our first choice was Hank because he does comic book guy, he does a Pooh, you know, he does, I'm pretty sure he does Cletus. You know, he does a lot of the characters that, you know, were the most fun, you know, least And then, um You know, Harry does, you know, Smithers and Burns and, you know, another set of characters um, does Otto. But um, you couldn't, you know, we just, you know, we had to make a decision. And and for the longest time, we didn't even think we'd get Hank. He was, uh, he just had a show canceled from TV and um, he didn't really want to do it. And then I think eventually, um, one way or the other, he was convinced and he read the script for us and, uh, you know. So we went ahead with the characters that we had.
1: Was there anything in um in Simpsons that got left out or in the cutting room floor that uh you were sorry? you know that 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 was originally designed in the game that didn't make it for production?
2: The there was only one thing that I remember there was um that was uh um that we couldn't that we couldn't use and that was um that was um the the comic book guy target it was originally a kicking target. And, you know, kind of like the uh, Gotleb used those quite a bit. Um uh, I think there was one in Striker Extreme too, which is probably where the idea came from. But basically when you hit the comic book guy target it would um it would uh you know, he kicked the ball back to the flipper. In fact, you could get a little volley going. You know, between between the target and the flipper, and you know, get like a bunch of shots. You know, um, back and forth. And you know, it was a pretty cool dynamic. But um, eventually, it was cost reduced out of the game.
1: So basically, it was a slingshot kicker for that target.
2: Basically, yeah.
1: So, how in you know in um in development time. How much extra time do you think you got for Simpsons compared to you know one of the, you know another game?
2: I want to say it was probably an additional three or four months.
1: Now, when you did Lord of the Rings, which was the next game, which again is extremely deep, did you have a lot of time for Lord of the Rings?
2: No. In fact, I, I had probably half the time for Lord of the Rings that I had for Simpsons. Um, and Lord of the Rings. Um I knew I didn't have as much time, so what I wanted to do that's that's kind of how I came about with the uh with the uh, the multiballs the way they were um I really liked the the kind of style of multiball where you could um and, and the, the two games were a really big influence on me in this regard um World Cup soccer and uh, jackpot. Both had really great multi balls where you'd start them, you'd go for a while, um, and then you would, uh, you know, you would drain out a multi ball, and then you could restart them and um, continue where you left off and get further down on it, get further down in them, and that kind of thing. So, so those were pretty big influences in me and designing how those multi balls work in Lord of the Rings. I knew that I wouldn't have as much time to put as much stuff as there was in Simpsons. So I figured I could kind of add depth by making things, you know, last a little bit longer, but, you know, be able to resume where you left off and that kind of thing.
1: Now, was Stern using like a like a design team concept like Williams did, or was it just, you know, every man's working on the current game?
2: It, it was eventually, yeah, I would say it was kind of a design team. I mean, the games that, that I was lead on, you know, I was, I was definitely in charge of um you know the basic content the theme integration and uh you know everything that um that the players saw basically um, i i when i my time at stern i worked with i worked on five different games where I was lead and I worked with five different designers and I don't think that uh <laughs> I'm not sure that anyone else is uh had quite that variety of people to work with, but um, but it was interesting, you know, and uh, it was definitely fun working with everybody.
1: I mean, but you said that on, on Simpsons, it was just you and, and, and Joe Balsa that were basically designed the whole game, so you had a lot more responsibility on Simpsons than you did on, say, some other games, right?
2: Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, um, George designed most of the play field for Lord of the Rings on Zone. We we played around with some stuff in the lab a couple times in terms of what to do with the ring or what to do, you know, like, you know, we we knew we wanted it to be a magnet. Um, At one point, we had it, like, kind of hovering over the play field, and and then, you know, eventually it got moved into the backboard with a jump ramp and that kind of thing. Um, You know, so there were definitely a bunch of different uh, things that, you know, it wasn't, Lord wasn't a playfield that I would have liked to have seen. You know, I wanted, you know, I wanted you to be able to hit, you know, some black gates and have them open up and shoot into Mordor and that kind of thing. Um, you know, and and it wound up being, you know, what it is now. Um, so you were thinking more of you a... with the success the game has had. Um, but even still, I I personally have more fun shooting Simpsons than I do have shooting Lord.
1: So you were thinking of like a almost like a medieval madness type thing, uh, Something
2: like that. You know, not quite. I mean, it was never going to be that serious or that jokey or anything like that. Uh, I mean, that funny or that you know, joking or anything like that as the medieval. But um, we wanted more ball interactive devices, I guess.
1: Yeah. Now the um. That, that little mini play field that's in the upper left side of, of Lord of the Rings like that I noticed one thing like uh, on my game that's like real white and on other games I see it it's more greenish was there any you know what was up with that
2: well that got you know it, it got changed early on it was um, it was originally kind of colorful and you know looked uh, it looked like the original source artwork we got for the you know the the uh the dead people. But um but, you know, when they we found out later in the movie they're gonna be more kind of a a ghoulish green time kind of thing, so that thing got it basically got, you know, saturated to green, you know, and um and colored that way. Um it's possible that, you know, that the printing differences, you know, from different runs could uh um, make it look a little different, but I don't think that very many exist with actual colorful paths of the dead people unless
1: you actually have one i don't know <laughs> yeah mine's mine's a pretty early one and yeah it, it definitely looks different than the later ones that's for sure it's definitely um the colors are more uh contrasted i'll put it that way yeah now so you, your simpsons and lord of the rings were really really deep rule sets how was the reaction by you know management to you spending this much time on 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 programming these
2: I mean, I don't think that they really cared one way or the other, you know. As long as, uh, as long as the the person that just walks up to the game gets entertained, and and this is kind of my philosophy in general. As long as you can, you know, entertain, you know, the people that just play for a couple minutes, who cares what else is in the rest of the game? I mean, you know, the game could, the game could take you three hours to finish, and who cares if it does or not? I mean, as long, you know, the, the game needs pacing. It needs, you know, for you to have achievable goals. And as you start to achieve those goals more and more regularly, then if you have more goals to achieve after that, it gives you something else to shoot for. And then if you have, you know, you start getting those more and more, then if you have something to shoot for after that, you know, that I don't see the problem in having this stuff in there if people want to spend the time getting to it. You know, if it makes you feel like, if it makes you feel upset, that you can't get to the end, uh, you know, I guess I never really understood that thinking myself. I mean, it's more about are you entertained with what you're doing now, you know, and, and you know, does the game entertain you at your skill level or, you know, does it not?
1: Well, I meant more like from did did um, did the word ever come down, look, we need to do these things, we need to compress the time schedule, these games need uh, get out sooner, We don't need this depth of code, you know. uh, Lighten, you know, lighten it up a little bit. I mean, was was that conversation? Did that ever happen?
2: Not really, because until Wheel of Fortune, no game that I worked on really, um, no game that I worked on was really incomplete by the time I went into production. I mean, Simpsons had everything in it um, when it started production. Um, There might have been some display effects and stuff like that added later but um but the game you know was pretty much done um Lord of the Rings you know I think when the very first 1.0 code went out he had everything in it except I think Valinor and that was finished by the time 4.0 came out which was the initial release to US production um Poker you know that game pretty that game might have taken a couple of revisions before everything was in it um but but Wheel is really the only game I think that um, that was truly unfinished in terms of uh you know, getting all of the stuff into the game. And there are a number of reasons why that was the case.
1: Well I well, do you mind talking about that?
2: Sure, sure. I mean, um, Wheel had Wheel had a lot of you know, even though it doesn't seem like it, it had a lot of stuff in it that had to be dealt with. Um I had to write you know a stepper motor driver for the new system because there hadn't been any stepper motors yet. I had to write um, I had to write you know the thing to drive the little auxiliary display down at the bottom of the play field because that's driven differently than the one in poker and um, and you know so that that required new code. Um, the The lights around the wheel had to be driven um, yet another way. Um, so, you know, there's all this time spent um, you know, in just basically work. And then I had to do all the stuff with the puzzles. And you know, I had to I had to solve the puzzles generically so that, you know, no matter what puzzle you had, it would fit on the screen and it would um, fill in properly and all that kind of thing. Um, then i had to make sure it supported all five different languages that the game supported um, so there was a lot of of base work and and wheel fortune that um, that needed to get done and that was just to get the basic you know the basic game up and running i mean you know it it did set off kind of a storm you know, especially um you know, after people perceive that Spider is not finished, even though, you know, it's it's pretty finished, um, it just doesn't have some display effects in it. Um it's you know people, you know, were telling me that, you know, we can't put as much stuff in the game, you know, gotta get the games done. And my point was the game, you know, everything that's in the game is the basic, the base minimum amount of stuff you need in a game. I mean, there's no wizard modes of any kind in Wheel of Fortune. There's not any higher-end features in Wheel of Fortune at all. It's all the the base stuff, and I barely had enough time to get all of the base stuff done. Um, part of it was I was promised additional resources um, that, that never wound up showing up to help me get the game done. So... You know, I I kept thinking that I'm working on stuff and someone else is working on something else. And then that, you know, other things that were important to get done didn't get done, so I had to go back and work on those and abandon what I was working on. It was just a big mess. And, and you know, since the game's reception wasn't very good at all, um, interest, you know, waned on it pretty quick in terms of, you know, doing what was needed done to really shore up the status of the game.
1: Why do you think the interest was was uh, low on that game? Do you think it was the theme or do you think it was the the playfield layout?
2: I think it was mostly the theme. Um although other people think it was the playfield layout. Um you have here you have, you know, although it's one of the most um you know, well-known, it's well, it's the number 1 syndicated show in America, you know, so a lot of people know about it and watch it obviously. Um you don't uh, set the world on fire. I mean, it's like, you know, like, oh, yeah, Wheel of fortune game. Got I really want to play that. Um, it skews a lot older than what our demographic supposedly is, which is, you know, 20-somethings in bars or, you know, 40-plus-somethings in bars. Um, at least that's what, you know, people would have me believe. So, I mean, people thought it would be a good scene because, well, I guess at least around the Chicago area that that show is always on TV when people get off work and go into bars. So I, I think I think one of the biggest problems that occurred in general was that was that basically um, the South Side of Chicago people thought were a microcosm of the rest of the nation in terms of what was going on in locations, and I don't know that that's necessarily the case.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of a cool game. I mean, it's um, gotta kind of re- reminds me of like uh, you know, like the 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 lower part between the flippers and that kind of like an old Gottlieb, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think I thought it was kind of cool myself, and the the bobblehead thing was.
2: But um, but the French in particular uh, were really upset at the game. You know, I I I think Gary said that you know one of them told them you know what are you doing? You know, you can't do this or something like that. You, know. you
1: mean because it was different?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, basically. You know, it was... You know, it it didn't have... It didn't have appeal. I mean, even though it appeals to a lot of... Uh, you know, it was different to appeal to a lot of, you know, pinball players. Um, I think the perception was that for the casual player, it was too tough. And, and I will agree that the outlines on the game were absolutely horrible, because... um basically had all the rubber on the sides of the slingshot, you know, shoving the ball out the out lanes all the time. So it was a very brutal game, you know, for casual players because, you know, they would just lose the ball down the sides a lot.
1: And, and you couldn't, there was no way to correct that with different posts or moving posts?
2: No, not really. I mean, you really needed to... uh you really needed the the inlane outlane post to be a lot higher so that you didn't have all the exposed rubber shoving the ball to the outside wood basically I mean you know if you if you have the post up higher then there's a lot more play that you know that you're going to get um rather than again rather than having the rubber shove the ball to the outlines
1: Now um we kind of skipped skipped uh a couple games here when we got talking on wheel of fortune but um uh, what about uh what about Elvis how what was your feeling about Elvis and your involvement in that game
2: um Elvis was uh that was a multi-headed beast that was Lonnie and Dwight and myself all uh, working together trying to get the game done um, it was uh it is what it is i mean it we definitely did the game wrong, I think, and you know, I don't know that um at least we did the game wrong in terms of you know, for the casual player there wasn't enough it wasn't easy enough with what we had originally done to hear the different songs. And of course, you know like in, in games of the past, like Guns N' Roses, you had one shot to start a mode and when you hit that shot the music changed and You know, all this other stuff happened. Um, In Elvis, you had to do... There are five different songs that you could hear, and you had to do all this stuff to start, you know, each different one of them. Um, So since the average person shoots each shot once a game, you know, chances are they're not going to do enough of what they need to do in order to start, um, you know, more than one different song. So the the game got... Dumbed down really fast in terms of, uh, you know, making it a lot easier for people to, to get to the different songs. So, I mean, it was basically, it basically was a poor design decision on our part to, uh, to try and get the different songs to, you know, do the, do it the way we did. I mean, there needed to be one shot where you would start a song and, you know, do the associated mode with the song and that kind of thing.
1: Is this something that could be changed through software, though, pretty easily?
2: Not the, not at this point, certainly. Um, I mean, I suppose you could like change the jailhouse to be like a mode start kind of thing, um, but then what? What do the other sides do when they're not, um, you know, advancing towards the modes like they do now? You know, so you know, we started down a path, and we're kind of committed to it, and. Uh, yeah you know, that's just kind of how it went. I mean, I tried to push very early on for um for Elvis kind of like like the five drop targets i I thought it should have been they should have been kind of like up the middle and there should have been a little trough behind them or something like that so you could break through the drop targets and then you know shoot into the trough and then that would start one of the five songs you know all shook up or whatever and you so that would basically be where you're different um song starts to come in and then elbows would come out and start singing and all that, and you could see him sing and dance, then kick the ball out and do whatever you're going to do for the mode. Um, but, you know, I, it was felt that, you know, it was too late to change from what the play field already was. So, you know, we are just kind of stuck with what we had and, you know, just continued going down the path we were going down.
1: So, yeah, so there's, you know, in that regard, are there, are any of the games you work on at this point, could, you know, now you maybe have a little, these things being, um, you know, have newer revisions released, or is that just, like, no way?
2: Well, I don't think so. I mean, it's, you know, sure, I could spend free time working on them if I uh, had access to the code and Stern wanted to support, you know, whatever changes were done, Um I don't know that I want to spend my free time doing that at the moment, and I don't know that, that Stern wants to deal with it either. I would assume that they wouldn't. I wouldn't if I were them.
1: You mean that a lot these are too great and the benefits are too small?
2: Yeah, basically. I mean, there's, there's, there's so little to be gained that, you know, I mean, when was the last time we ran Elvis? I mean, it had to be, you know, two or three years ago at least. You know, what's the benefit to changing the way Elvis plays now there is no benefit
1: right same thing with world with um wheel of fortune same thing with wheel of fortune too
2: um that would be my guess I don't know if they feel there's any goodwill they could get from changing it or not my guess would be probably not uh you know I'm not really sure
1: so the game sales just weren't there and the chances of getting a rerun on that game are pretty low
2: Real fortunate. I don't think it's gonna be rerun now. So, so yeah. I mean, sales weren't too good on it. Um, Like I said, the French blame the the flipper layout. Um, I my guess is it's an excuse. I don't know. Um, I don't know if anyone.
0: I don't know if anyone
2: really knows why any particular games do well or not. I mean, things that seem to work well are hot titles and cool toys. You know, and you know that probably makes a lot of sense. Um, if you, uh, I mean, pirates is the the primary example of that. You have you have a really hot title because you know the the movies made so much money. Um, you have a really cool toy, the ship. You have a semi cool toy, the chest and the and the mixmaster. Um, so, you know, I, I mean. Pirates Pirates primary selling point was definitely the ship in the chest, I think. Since you know, most people couldn't really shoot the ramp enough times to, to get, you know, that that toy going, I don't think, you know, in terms of the casual player. So I mean, you know, you it's you know, it's really the the attack from Mars and a and medieval madness, you know you know, really cool toy up the middle thing that, you know that that's of primary, utmost importance. For pinball, I think, is having cool things that people can interact with. And then, um, you know, if you have the hot tile on top of that, then that's, you know, then you've got a A plus game. And then anything that you can do to the, to the rules or the code to make it, you know, more, more, um, attractive to, you know, core pinball players, then that, you know, that helps you there as well, so... I mean, I think it's very possible for games to appeal to, you know, all groups of people, and the games that do that do very well.
1: Hmm. All right, well now, what about World Poker Tour? You worked on that game, right?
2: Yeah, that was the first game of the new system. Um, You know, well, the first, you know, really publicly released game. And, uh... Yeah, it it was a lot of work to just to get um... just to write a bunch of code like you know handling modes or um... you know just engineering rules for the first time it's uh... took a long time to get everything to where it needed to be um... you know as as games went on from there it got easier and easier to to write rules and and as stern would have gone on um... The more and more code that you have built up, then the uh, the easier and the easier it will be to make games, you know, going down the line. Um, but you know, it's there's still a lot of stuff that that needed to be done, in terms of you know it's the first time on the new system we had a stepper motor, the first time on the new system we had you know a motor that you know that did you know went from point A to point B like on Batman. You know, there, there are a lot of things that had to be re-engineered under, you know, C and C++ that, um, you know, that, that would have been pretty easy to just, you know, drag and drop from a previous game under 68 9. So, you know, there's a lot of additional work, especially on poker being the first game. And um, it was it was a challenge, you know, to get everything done that and to get everything in there that I wanted to get in. Um, spent a lot of... Lot, you know, late hours and long nights trying to get um, everything done. But for the most part, everything was pretty much done. You know, the people talk about unfinished code on poker and I don't think it was really unfinished as much as the fact that, um, that there was a really bad bug for a while that, that we had no idea how to duplicate or, you know, find what the problem was. And that certainly, uh, that certainly hurt it quite a bit. Um, but we also had hardware issues too. I mean, we had uh, we had flash parts that that were um, that they got too hot were you know sending back incorrect information. You know, basically executing bad code. So you know that was a problem we had as well. So there are a number of challenges with poker in terms of uh, in terms of getting field acceptance. And um, someone someone eventually told us. I don't remember who it was. You know that we missed the boat on World Poker Tour, which you probably did. It was past its peak or past its prime um, in terms of you know being out there in the public eye. You know we were we were probably a year too late um, doing poker, and to, you know for it to have had you know its maximum visibility or its maximum interest, you know for for people wanting to buy the game.
1: Now, um, how did you feel that that was our Richie design, right? Steve Ritchie design, right? Yep. How did you feel about the general play field layout that he did?
2: I thought it was great. I mean, you know, 16 drop targets, how can you hate that? You know, that was that was great to play and to work with. You know, he was very careful in terms of uh, getting, you know, cool rebounds, you know, from the flippers to, you know, different banks and that kind of thing. Um, You know, the with all those drop targets, you know, it really pushed the shots really back, so it was a different... It was a different feeling game in general, but you know, it was it was definitely different. You know, really wide open play field, with a lot of drop targets, and you know, still had shots you could shoot. I mean, I think I think it was a great play field personally.
1: So, was the development time on the new system using C I mean, was it it was it took you longer because it was the first game? But I mean, in general, is working under the new you know SAM system is that better than the old sixty eight oh nine?
2: yeah by far i mean at least now at this point we have uh... you know integrated debuggers and stuff like that you know we don't have you know we're not we're not trying to guess where the code is going wrong and that kind of thing Um, you know we can set up breakpoints and you know debug code like you know people regularly debug code in terms of uh... you know writing it on their pcs or you know whatever it was is by far a far more professional environment and a far nicer one in terms of uh, being able to just get stuff done.
1: And was the hardware faster, too, and more memory?
2: Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, well, it needed a lot more memory because, you know, code's just uh, bloatier if you're writing for C and C++ than it is for if you're doing handcrafted assembly. I mean, in '9, you're talking about... Um, what was it, like 8K of RAM or something like that? And uh, and 64K of bank-switched ROM and, and you know, out of 128K possible, you know, for code. I mean, it was, uh, there, there was a lot of stuff you had to deal with in the old system in terms of, you know, making sure that that code bank-switched properly it was all, you know, you know, within the same region and that kind of thing so that you didn't um, do really bad things and, you know, have your game go off into la-la land.
1: Interesting. So now, were you happy with, um, with the World Poker Tour and, you know, and, and ultimately how it turned out, even though that, that game didn't seem like it got a really good reception?
2: No, it didn't. Um, I mean, I'm, I don't have any regrets with any game that I've worked on. Other than um, Wheel of Fortune not getting finished, um, I'm happy with how every single game that I've worked on has ultimately turned out. at least every game that I was lead on turned out. Um, you know I, I, and I'm pretty happy for the most part with where family Guy is too, for that matter, even though I wasn't really primary on that game, but you know I did do a lot of stuff for it. so um, I think family Guy turned out okay, and, and I certainly think the, the first four games I did came out really well. And and Wheel of Fortune definitely was on the right track, just you know, just didn't get the the extra resources that I needed to to get the game done.
1: What well, was there going to be another programmer that was going to help you or something?
2: Yeah, basically, um, that was about the time that we hired an additional person. So we we're trying to get him up to speed, um, and we we're working on trying to get Shrek and Indiana Jones done. At the same time, I mean, basically, there's a lot of stuff going on all at once, and and it caused uh, it really caused Wheel real Fortune to fall by the wayside.
1: Now, how much involvement did you have in Family Guy?
2: Um, I was responsible for basically writing all the modes. Um, I wrote the I wrote the final modes in the game. Um, I'm trying to remember, oh, I did everything. I had to rewrite a bunch of stuff for Stewie Pinball. Um, and I basically made Stewie Pinball the way it is right now, um, so you know a pretty fair amount of the game. Um, I didn't have much to do with uh, with setting up the script and that kind of thing. That was mostly uh, that was mostly Lonnie's purview.
1: Now, you know, I'm I'm starting to hear about Family Guy as basically being. I'm hearing this from a number of people, I, and I was wondering if you agree or not, but Family Guy being basically the best pinball game ever made. I, I mean, I, you know, that's it's such a generic term, and I hate to say that, but I'm really starting to hear this from people. What's, it, what's your feeling?
2: I think it's a good game. I think it has a lot of stuff that, I mean, certainly it's, it's humor. If you're into that kind of humor, it's probably unparalleled. You know, there's just so much voice work in the game. Um you know, there's there's just a lot of stuff to hear. I mean, that's probably a large source of entertainment. It, it seems like there's, if it, 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 maybe there's something you haven't heard in a while, or you know, there's just stuff that you haven't, um, you may not have even heard yet. You know, there's a lot of variety in that game. That you know, that even though it may not have as many rules as some other games, the the voices and sounds sure make it seem. You know, it sure makes it last a lot longer. I think.
1: Now, um yeah I, I i don't mean to just say that with family guy i'm also hearing this this same thing about trek which means you know it's not so much the theme as it is you know the the general feel the general rules the general toys of the game you know seem to be people really seem to dig it
2: yeah well i mean that's uh it's a good play field and you know the uh the mini pinball is certainly an, an interesting toy and um i mean there's a number of there's just a number of different things, you know, in the game. I mean, the more variety of stuff that you have to do, the more you know, the more you're gonna enjoy a game, I think. I mean I think that's one of like Simpson's biggest draws, for example. I mean there's just there's a lot of stuff that um that that you can do. I mean, you know, there's the, the alien invasion thing, there's the Springfield Mystery Spy with the reverse flippers thing, you know, there's all the modes, you know, although they're kind of the same structure, you know, they all have different goals and that kind of thing. And you have, you know, the two different main multiballs. You know, just uh, the more that you give people to do and the more you don't tie them in doing something at any one time, you know, and just, like, let stuff happen as it goes along, um, you know, the more people, the more fun people are going to have with games in general.
1: You know, you must be pretty proud, though, that you know you here. You've had your hand or been largely responsible for some of certainly, the, you know, the 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 best some of the best pinball ever made. I mean, being with Lord of the Rings and Simpsons and you know um, uh, Family Guy slash Shrek. I mean, you know, you must be pretty proud of this.
2: Oh, I'm I'm definitely proud of the work I've done. I you know I like I said I don't have I don't have too many regrets of you know things that that I've done, I mean, if certain things haven't been as popular, you know, that's okay, you know, it's, I, I enjoy playing all the games that I've worked on, and that's certainly, you know, I, 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 guess, um, I like to try and design games that I like playing, you know, hopefully that, you know, so I've played so many games over the years, I mean, I'm, I probably know, all there is to know about almost every single 90s game that, you know, that was produced. Um, and, you know, going before that, you know, late 80s games, you know, my, as, as, as you start going back further, you know, I don't know as much about as many games, but I've played a lot of games over the years, and, you know, I just know what I think is fun and what I think sucks, and, you know, so I just, take all that knowledge and you know when when I'm working on a game I don't do the stuff I think sucks and I do the stuff that I think is fun no no but if you don't if you don't have that you know that knowledge or that um you know you just don't play that many games or whatever it's you know it's gonna be harder I mean you're gonna you're gonna try more stuff and then you know you'll find out that it's not fun or whatever but if you know that it's not fun because you played X feature on Y game you know, back in nineteen ninety three or something, then then you'll know you'll know just not to even go down that path.
1: Now the um family guy was kind of a, a different design or different development change for, for Lawler in that he used to have Louis Koziar as his in house programmer and they would do everything and basically just hand you guys the game, you know, the, the Monopoly, and a lot of his games were, were done like that. But since Lewis has been gone, he basically just does the design and then hands the game over to you guys, and you guys do all the programming at this point. Has this set up any Stern and, and, and Lawler in this regard?
2: Um, I don't know if I can really speak to that or not. I mean, you know... All I know is that, um, is that I, I don't think, I don't think that, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, um, Pat was as into the themes of, of, uh, CSI and the Family Guy, um, as he was into games that he's worked on in the past. So, um, you know, I think that, I think, you know, being forced to work on games that you don't necessarily agree with is is gonna is gonna wear on you. And um I mean I you know, I know it wore on me to some extent. And uh so, you know, I don't I don't think it was I don't think it was necessarily, you know, how the games were developed. As much as uh just, you know, not agreeing with what it is you're assigned to work on so much.
1: So, yeah, I heard that, that he was actually kind of mad with the final outcome of Family Guy in that, you know, because you guys took it in maybe a different direction than he envisioned?
2: Um, You know, I haven't really talked to him about it, so I don't know. You know, I don't know exactly what his feelings are towards it. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that's certainly possible. I, uh I... I think the game came out pretty good, so would be you know I'd be pretty happy with the way the game is at the moment myself
1: and and you brought up c s i which is uh kind of like the next game in the queue it's stern and what you know what uh how much development did you do on that game
2: uh not that much honestly i mean there's one there's one device on the game, the centrifuge that I probably wrote most of the code for. Um but that that was about the extent of my involvement with that particular game. I mean I sat in a planning meetings and you know threw out suggestions, you know, for some of the other stuff and that kind of thing, but um but in terms of uh you know, writing rules and and coming up with scripts and stuff like that, uh my involvement was mostly just the uh centrifuge toy.
1: Now you from um, Stern is um recently Kind of been through, you know, took the economic downturn, uh, kind of, kind of badly on the chin, as it may be. And um, you, you've been laid off. Is that correct? Yes. How, who else? I mean, it was unemployed. Yeah. So, is it was it just you, or was there a lot of other people involved in this?
2: I would say slightly over fifty percent of the overhead staff was cut, and um, and then. The people that were remained took additional pay cuts well in order to you know keep their job
1: is this just because sales have really gone down
2: yeah i mean sales sales are definitely way down with the with the last uh, couple games I mean you yeah, know I'm not going to get into numbers or anything, but um you know sold a decent amount of Indiana Jones and then sold less of uh Batman and uh you know certainly not what what people are expecting i think and then you know things just start drying up after a while i mean summer is always a bad time anyway so i think um... took 10% pay cut in august you know pretty much everyone that worked there and uh... that was like that was the day before papa i remember that because you know i was getting ready to go to papa Um, so i think that you know the feeling was that 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 was just going to be um. You know, for the summer, and then things of business would pick up as uh, Christmas sales started going up, you know, because we typically rerun a bunch of games right before Christmas, and, um, and you know, it, you just got more volume, you know, going into Christmas because you have a lot more games you're working on. Um, but with the economy going the way that it was, um, orders are just drying up in general. I mean, you know, the you're not going to get people buying $4,000 games for the game rooms when, you know, they're watching their 401Ks lose, you know, 20 30%.
1: Speaking of which, I mean, how much of the home market is really responsible for Stern's sales? I mean, if there was a percentage that you know of.
2: Well, when Gary said his 50% in that New York Times article, I think he meant the 50%, but at that time, you know, he meant 50% of U.S. sales. So, like, if if U.S. sales are two-thirds of the market and overseas is one-third, then that means home ownership could, you know, could account for maybe up to a third of the games. You know, certainly not 50% of all of production. Um, but even though that is the case, you know, a large percentage of people that are buying for the home are still not, you know, hardcore RGP type people. You know, it's still casual players. I mean, you have your casual players that play pinballs on location and then you have casual players that buy games for the home. So I think, uh, I think the feeling is that the casual player is, you know, still you know, even though they're buying for the home, they're still a casual player, and they don't care about you know deep rule sets and that kind of thing Now, that, that I, I guess I'm basically saying that you know the r g p enthusiast type crowd you know can't say you know that that people that care about deep rule sets account for fifty percent of sales
1: do you um so, with, in a bad economy, the home sales is obviously going to drop. Has operator sales dropped too?
2: Uh, I don't know the exact answer to that. I mean, I can only assume that it has. Um, I mean, you know, a part of the uh, the life cycle of pinball was always was always that we told operators you could buy a game and operate it for a year. And then sell it into the home. And, you know, then get the next game and put that on your location. So if you, uh, you know, if you can do that, then then that's a great business plan. But if you have either, if you have people aren't buying games through the basements anymore because the economy is tanking, or you have themes that people don't want in their basement, then, you know, that's another reason that people, you know, that, that, that's that's going to kill the life cycle of pinball because you can't unload your your game into you know into the home market afterwards i mean you know i don't i don't know how many people are would buy csi for their basement so i don't know how many people would um, would buy csi after it came off route you know if you operate the game for a year you know are you going to be able to unload it into a basement i'm not so sure i don't know how many people Care enough about CSI to have a CSI pinball in their basement in their game room.
1: Yeah, CSI kind of seems like you know you again. You guys are like a year too late on that whole thing.
2: Well, I don't know if it's a year too late, but you know, I I don't know. I was never particularly in agreement with doing that theme as a game from day one. That's just my personal opinion. As far as I, I don't. I don't know how much um, games that are coming up, you know. I mean, my guess is that a lot of them are going to be in that same kind of boat.
1: You mean that with uh, 24 or whatever that follows?
2: Yeah, basically.
1: Is um, I I mean, do you guys, as far as themes, do you guys have a hard time coming up with with, uh, licenses that you can acquire? Is that the problem?
2: That is a huge problem. I mean, you know, it, certainly you want to uh, do games that, that people are excited about and that, you know, you know people are going to, you know, want to play the games of. Um, but if you can't make the deal with a licensor to acquire the rights to make the game, then there's not much you can do about that. I mean, you can't make the game. <laughs> it's, you know, if uh, every. Everyone in the world can say that, you know, oh, X and, X and Y would make, you know, such a great team, but if um, the licensor doesn't want you to, doesn't want to let you make the game, you know, as is the case for, say, Harry Potter, for example, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I mean, you can't make the game.
1: Why? Did you try and get the Harry Potter theme?
2: It's been tried a couple times, and we've been turned down. So, I mean, yeah. It's, uh, that's, that, as far as I know, it's probably not going to happen anytime soon.
1: Now, wh- how do you, I mean, it was Stern, who, I guess, who's left at Stern if they laid off 50% of their staff? I mean, did they lay off all the programmers, or was it just 50% straight across?
2: Um, no, that uh, Lonnie Ropp and Lyman Sheets are still programming, um, Ray Tanzer and John Wathemell are still with the uh, mechanical department. Um, trying to think, Pat Powers is still in service. Um, I think Chaz is too. Um, but you know, every department got hit. I mean, you know, purchasing got hit, accounting got hit. Um, you know that that it was just basically a global, you know, reduction in staff.
1: Is what happened to Dwight?
2: They Dwight got laid off as well.
1: So it's basically the only programmers there is is Lonnie, who really isn't a programmer anymore. In Lyman, then.
2: Well, Lonnie's still a programmer. I mean, he did a lot of the work on. Um, I mean, he did a lot of work on Family Guy. He did most of the work on Indiana Jones, um, and he's done a fair amount of the work on CSI. I mean, you know, he was director of the department, but he definitely still programs
1: yeah but i I don't like Lonnie's games
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean you know that's uh that's that I don't know what to tell you about that i mean
1: well Lonnie's old school i mean he's old school day to east shoot this ramp forty seven times and then go to the next thing i mean i i you know that was the kind of the big complaint with Indiana Jones is that it was. It was old-school to East, not only with the programming, but also with the playfield layout. And, and I think that's why it didn't get as good a reception, even though they got the great theme. Man, they just, I don't know, to me it seemed like they, they could have done a lot more with it.
2: Well, I won't argue with anything you just said. I mean, I certainly didn't like the game. Um, you know, I, I will say that the direction that, you know, that I thought the game was going in at first was was better sounding, but just the way that it wound up being implemented, I don't think uh, I don't think was very fun at all. I mean, I can't I can't argue with that. I, I don't like the game.
1: Yeah, again, I'm I'm back to this bell curve thing where, uh, you know, Simpsons and Lord of the Rings is at the top of the bell curve, and you know, you were working up. To that point and now things are kind of sliding back down the other side of the bell curve and I, uh, you know it's it doesn't make me quite as warm and friendly feeling about the whole thing
2: well um that's probably uh I, I mean i understand what you're saying um but certainly from management's perspective you know they don't uh i don't think they care about that so much i mean you probably saw the the storm that happened on RGP when um, when that guy posted about his conversation with Gary Stern, and uh, you know I I'm sure that what was posted was pretty much exactly how how Gary feels feels or felt or whatever.
1: Do Do you want to just just for our, our listeners? Do you want to just kind of summarize that a little bit?
2: Well, just that you know the. The RGP hardcore enthusiast is not, um, is not a very significant amount of the market. And that, you know, um, if they're not interested in the games, then, then that doesn't bother him too much.
1: and, and to his point, it's probably a, a strong argument because if you think about it, Do you really want to support a guy that can put, you know, seventy five cents in a game and then play a game for thirty minutes or an hour on one game? Because while he's playing that game for that long, that means nobody else can stick money in the game. So, you know, you kinda do want the more casual guys that are gonna play a three minute or a five minute or even a you know, an eight minute game opposed to somebody that's just gonna, you know, take the thing, you know, down the street and around the block forty seven times.
2: You know if people are lined up five deep to play pinball machines, then I might agree with you,
1: but it's just at this point you're saying you'll take any quarters you can get.
2: People don't play pinballs, pinballs don't earn, and I don't think it's uh I don't think it's because you know good players are playing on them too long. I just think that it's a fundamental lack of appeal
1: what What do you see as the long-term health of stern? I mean, are they going to be able to keep doing what they're doing?
2: I personally am not very optimistic about the long-term health of Stern. I mean, you know, when we got the the ten percent pay cuts in August, I had pretty much made up my mind that that I was going to have to leave, and had already started putting my resume out there. So I don't think, um, you know, I had already come to the conclusion that I was not going to be able to to continue. At Stern myself,
1: and how was I? Mean is you know I know you don't speak for these guys, but I mean how what was the feeling with with Dwight and and Lyman in that?
2: Um, it's hard to say exactly. I mean, I think I think everyone knew that you know things are definitely on the uh, on the downswing, Um, but I don't think that um, I don't think I will say that I fully expected layoffs of some kind to occur. But I and I think most other people did not expect the the amount of uh, complete carnage that occurred um, last Wednesday. I mean, I I certainly was surprised by it. Um, you know, like I said, I expected some people to get laid off. I didn't expect uh, I didn't expect the amount of people to get laid off that got laid off.
1: You mean you thought the numbers were going to be much smaller?
2: Yes, I did.
1: So do you? Is there anything Stern can do, in your opinion, that that could turn this around, or is it just solely linked to the economy?
2: The economy is a huge portion of it, but, um, but, you know, ultimately, games need to earn money in order for them to, you know, continue their business and, you know, figuring out how to make pinball earn money so that it's a... Uh, You know, viable purchase for operators is probably their number one concern. Hmm. I mean, you know, because if you're going through bad times like this, you obviously can't rely on the home market. So you really have to rely on the operator. I mean, so from that perspective, Gary is right to not want to cater to the home market, even though I think, you know, the home market was, was, and it needs to be of utmost concern because you still have to keep up that life cycle of games getting into the basement eventually, so that you know operators can unload them for most of what they originally paid for them. So you know, even though, even though um, you don't want to rely on sales into the basement up front, you want to rely on sales into the basement, um, you know, a year from now or whatever. So that's why you have to. To pick themes that you know appeal to people that you know want to put the games in their homes.
1: Hi, do you think that the uh, you know like on Batman and Spider Man, um, uh, you know when the games were were really released with with you know re, you know unfinished code as it may be? Do you think that that hurt sales at all or had really no effect in the long run?
2: My guess is that um, the number of sales that affected was. Was probably a pretty small blip. Like my guess would be under three percent.
1: And, and because most people just don't care, or they just don't know better.
2: Yeah, that, exactly. Most people don't know and and won't, you know, won't see the the further down results and that kind of thing. Right. Right.
1: Okay. So do you mind taking a couple callers? I'll shoot out our phone number. Uh, see if we can get some people to call in. Do you mind taking some questions?
2: That's fine.
1: Okay, this may be tricky, but um, we'll, we'll give it a I'll give it a whirl here. If you want to call in and ask Mister Johnson some stuff, uh, anything related to pinball, two four eight. So, like, what is your favorite game that 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 you like to play? That ones that you worked on, or ones that you know that weren't your that you weren't involved in?
2: Uh, Simpsons is my favorite game. I think just the amount of variety of stuff that there is to do in the game. I am. Pretty proud of, and I have a lot of fun playing
1: it. Well, we got a call already. Okay, hold on a second. Let me see if I can do this right. Hold on. Hello, welcome to TopCash. You're on the air with with uh, Keith Johnson. How can uh, what kind of question you got?
0: Uh, yes, uh, Keith, uh, I was uh, wondering um, prior to uh, the uh, Simpsons pinball party and Lord of the Rings, um, rule sets were relatively uh short and uh you uh pretty much uh, set the bar of uh making these games to where they have very move sets uh was that something that uh you personally the time was disappointed with uh pinball and uh felt as if uh you know these these games should have uh a little bit more depth uh what exactly was your approach of uh kind of turning things around uh to where uh these games all of a sudden now have deep rule sets
2: Um, yeah, I would say that, um, there were definitely, there were definitely, I didn't, I didn't enjoy just having, um, you know, just being able to do the same things over and over and over again. I mean, I felt, I felt like if I could add some other stuff to shoot for, um, you know, why not do it? I mean, the whole goal of, uh, Simpsons, for example, Was, I knew I wanted to have all these different features and all the features to have their own ending. And then, and then almost as kind of a cruel joke, I made it that you had to, to win each of the different things in order to get to the final final mode. So, I mean, it was, it was sort of a joke, but it was sort of serious. I mean, I wanted, you know, I wanted to make an impossible carrot out there so that people would feel like, you know, there was always something to do on the game. Um because as it is now, games like, you know games that appealed to me when I was starting off as a player, such as uh Adam's Family and Twilight Zone, I just felt like um I I guess I lost interest uh the, the you know, when I started being able to get um, you know, multiple uh multiple loss in the zones on the same ball and that kind of thing. So I guess with, you know, I, my goal was always to try and give players something new and different to do and something, um, something just out there for them to, to try and, uh, to try and play, to try and get to.
1: Yeah, you know, you did a great job. I mean, the, 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 you know, I, I don't want to harp on this, but the, the Lonnie Rupp shoot the Star Wars ramp 47 times, you know, to, to advance, it, it does get old really quick.
2: Well, yeah, and my um and this is a conversation that I've had with Lonnie multiple times and and that's just that um that's you know that it's work. You know, and work isn't fun. Um the my personal experience with this was when I played um one of the first expos I came up for it must have been ninety six or ninety five or so. I was playing Scared Stiff and I got to, uh, I know I got to Scared Stiff six times, I won it five times, I played two spider multi-balls all in one game, and it gets to the point where you have to shoot the ramp six times to light lock or seven times to light lock, and, you know, you have to shoot the crate 28 times to start crate multi-ball. I mean, that's, it's just not fun, it's just stupid after a while. So, you know, my, I always tried to make things that weren't just pure flat out work. I tried to make things get harder and, you know, if it wasn't, if it got to the point where it couldn't get any harder, I was like, well, you know, that's it. You know, that's just the hardest it's gonna be. You know, I never tried to do, I tried to make sure that, that nothing was just plain flat out work. I just, you know, I tried to make it as interesting as I could.
1: In that regard is hey, are there any Easter eggs and games that you know that, that you've worked on that maybe people haven't found or anything like that that you know that we should be looking for?
2: as uh, much of anything um on Lord of the Rings or, or poker necessarily. And um so, no, I mean I think you know, I think most of the features have been discovered and found out about and, and documented, you know. Not all the games have rule sheets or, you know, have all of the stuff um have all of the stuff, you know, detailed and in, in, you know, written format. But I'm I'm relatively sure that most people um that, that that you know, all the features have been discovered at one point or another. All
1: right, great. I'm gonna let you go. Uh thanks for calling in. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Well again, if you want to call and ask a question, two four eight so that, that wasn't, that was a pretty good question, right?
0: Yeah,
1: sure. A little long-winded, but, you know, it's, it's, that's okay. You know, we were all like.
2: Yeah, you know, there's probably lots of things that, that I haven't talked about in terms of, you know, my philosophy of game design or, you know, what, um, you know, what I feel is, uh, good or appropriate or whatever. But, I mean, you know, ultimately, I think games, Games need to make you have wow moments or, you know, they need to make you think, wow, that was really cool that they followed that and put it in there, you know, and that kind of thing. And that, you know, games that lack that are, you know, are the kind of games that you're talking about. It's like, okay, well, just hit this, hit this, you know, do that. Okay, start a multi-ball again, big deal. You know, those are, those are the kinds of things that, um you know, I, I want to give people the wow moments. You know, I want people to, to have things that they, you know, I want people to have things to shoot for and, you know, get to and that kind of thing.
1: All right, let's take this one. Hi, right, welcome to TopCast. What's your first name? Eric. Eric, uh, so what kind of question do you have for Mr. Johnson?
0: Hey, Keith. Hey, Clay. Uh, question. I got a Star Trek Next Gen that's got, like, oodles of flipper coats in it. And I was wondering, uh, do you guys have stuff like that messages for people like "Hey, how you doing and stuff
2: like that? There's some in there. I mean, you know most of them are to friends and family and that kind of thing um and so as a result, don't make you know much sense to to really put out there but um but yeah, you know most games will have something like that for you know various relatives of uh of you know of whoever you know whoever is important to you, <laughs> okay.
0: Um, I just saw, remember the the whole game code, like on Elvis and Lord of the Rings, that had a really cool light show.
2: um-hmm
0: Just was that leftover time and stuff
2: that you guys just put in there for fun, or all well, I that? mean, I did it because uh, you know, I you know, we never were allowed to like put our names on the playfield or anything like that. So I just oh. wanted to make sure you know there's a way to get to it, you know, somehow. Well.
1: Now, what was the thinking?
2: Great
0: fun. I got a Lord of the Rings now and a family guy, and they're, they're never leaving.
2: <laughs> no, thanks.
0: See you guys. Thanks.
1: Hello. Welcome to Topcast. What's your first name? Uh, Mark. Mark, go ahead. Shoot a question.
0: I just wanted to thank uh, Keith for uh, programming some great games. Lord of the Rings and uh, others just uh, have enjoyed playing them over the years. And I was just wondering if he thought maybe Stern would uh, cut back some of the. New games each year, and uh, maybe focus on just uh, rerunning some of the more popular titles. Could cut back uh, new games, what? I think what he said is run some of the more popular titles, and you know, not maybe run three different new titles a year.
1: Yeah, cut cut back on the number of new titles, and maybe you know, rehash or or re you know make you know Family Guy or Lord of the Rings or Simpsons or whatever you know, to save on design costs.
2: Well Thank you. well, I'm sure that you know titles will continue to be remade, but um you know you can only get so many of those at, at a time and, and certainly there's so many you know pirates and so many Simpsons it, it just makes you wonder um how much uh how much um you know how many more you can continue to produce of those games i mean you' and you're not gonna to make any more lord you know that's done and over with so you know i mean you can certainly continue to make games but the volume that is available to be made for previous games is not going to sustain your business i mean you know it's you really need those to fill in the gaps as it were but i mean you still need to make new games and you need to make new product to to keep your business alive and sustainable uh, how stern is going to manage to to make um, so many new games with the crew that
1: they have right now. Hi, welcome to Topcast. What's your first name and what is your question?
0: My name is Michael and, uh, Keith, I have a question for you. Yep. Now that Stern has fired all of their designers, who exactly is now going to be making games for Stern? Who is going to be designing games now for Stern?
2: Um, I don't honestly know. I mean, my guess is that at some point they'll start trying to contract design out again, but you know i you know I don't know whether they'll use Dennis and John and steve and you know and and whatever, but um that's you know my guess is that they're you know they may even use Pat again you know I don't know um i you know it just i i I don't have the answer for you i uh assume that anything that comes down the line is going to be as a a result of contract work. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, No problem.
1: Yeah, you know, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine and saying that, you know, if you really want it to be cheap, I mean, really cheap, you could essentially um, design games for, uh, I mean, you obviously can't, you know, Pat Lawler and Steve Ritchie, they obviously command a lot of money uh, to design a game. But you know, you there's there's guys that would probably be willing to do it that could do really good games for like they would probably do it for God I I would think just next to nothing like you know the guy that comes to mind is I would think Trudeau would be happy to come in and design a game even though he may not you know maybe he'll only work on a, on a percentage basis and on percentage of sales or something you know
2: Yeah, I mean I don't know enough about the decision and everything that needs to to happen, I mean, you know, people need to be able to do a lot of, um, you know, a lot of work, you know, related to laying out a play field and, you know, I just, I, you know, I don't know if or, you know, why or why not, you know, um, John Trudeau was, was ever contacted, um, you know, some people were contacted and just aren't interested. Um, you know, for various reasons. I mean, you know, they have full-time jobs and, you know, don't want to, you know, mess up time with their family and that kind of thing, which, you know, I can totally respect and understand. So, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there, but you can't just hire anyone either. I mean, this has been a big problem for Stern for a lot of years, I think, you you know, that they've always relied on, um, you know, people that have done it before. I mean, there hasn't been a new person you know laying out a playfield and i can't even think of how long and at some point you know assuming the business stayed the same you know forever you know those people aren't going to be able to lay out games forever at some point you got to get new people designing games um but there's a lot of work and and a lot of stuff that that you know people don't understand what's involved either and you know just, just how much work is is really laying out a play field really takes. I mean, sure, you can throw a bunch of stuff on a game, but, you know, is there enough money? Is there enough space on the bottom of the play field to hold all the parts that um, that you want to put on the game? I mean, these are things that, that people, when they talk about laying out games, don't, it doesn't even cross their mind, you know, that, you know, like flipper mechs have footprints, so you can't put any lights where the flipper mechs are. You know, and it's just things like that 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 I think people don't get or don't think about, you know.
1: Is there anything that Stern could be doing that they're not doing, in your opinion, that that would would help sales or help the whole process?
2: I have pushed for years to try and get people to do play fields where, where the ball is more bouncing around and it's not just shot post, shot post, shot post, you know, getting balls spoon fed, getting balls spoon fed to the players all the time and things like that. I mean I think you really need to go back to more open play field. I mean, you know, I I in a meeting maybe like half a year to a year ago, you know, you know, people were asking, me, Well, what are you talking about? And I was like, Well, Stargazer is a good example of a play field that's open but has some interesting stuff on it and you know, things you can't necessarily get to. I mean, the ball is just rolling around and, you know, does interesting things. And, um, I don't know. I think that, um, I think that pinball needs to go back more towards pinball and less towards, you know, nothing but shots.
1: Hi, welcome to TopCast. What's your first name and what's your question for Keith?
2: Uh, My name is Jim and I have uh, two questions for Keith. Sure. Uh, The first question, Keith,
1: is, uh, your level as a programmer and not a designer um, on games that you worked on—did you have a lot more input
2: than um, as as a programmer for the rule sets? Um, I apologize if this was already covered in the show, but I haven't heard the whole show yet. Um, what are you talking about again? Um, sorry. I I
1: think what he was saying is as a since you were more of a programmer and, and less of a designer. I mean, was your import, how was your import perceived by the design team, and, and were you able to get what you wanted in the games, you know, as a programmer?
2: Well, for, I mean, as far as the games that I was lead on, pretty much every, pretty much every decision in terms of what the rules were um, were mostly mine. Um, you know, I was 100% responsible for, for the rules of all the games that I was lead on. Um, you know, and certainly I had an influence on on various games. Um, I mean, the, uh, the, the mousetrap thing in World Poker Tour, for example, um, I, I kind of came up with that, you know, for Elvis, you know, I said, well, we should make this jail where you can shoot a ball into it and, you know, and the ball's captured and you hit it. Um, so eventually, we used that in World Poker Tour just because it was a fun device, you know, um as far as other games i mean um i've certainly had influences on uh what things were where um we, it, originally where the auto loop was in simpsons for example um that was originally just like a dead end target almost like a uh, like a train wreck kind of thing i was like well I'll just make it a loop so you can aim it at the uh the stand up targets since you know you couldn't shoot them otherwise um and also the uh the whole reason there's an upper play field was kind of my insistence. I wanted I wanted there to be an upper play field of some kind so that you could have you know I wanted to design a multi ball where you had balls going on both play at the same time and you know, the goal was to, you know, get to the top of the play field while you still had balls going on a lower play field. I mean that was still that was probably a big influence on family guy too. So um you know, that's, you know, I just like doing interesting things that you know haven't necessarily been done before, and I keep trying to to push that in on uh, on every game that I work on.
1: You had an, you had another question too?
2: Yeah, the second question is, and thank you for your answer. Uh, the second question, and I don't know if this was covered also, but has Stern ever thought of venturing down the road of
0: uh, single level games, uh, like street level games or Capcom classics? I mean. A lot of people discuss it. Um, I don't know if it'd be profitable.
2: I've never even discussed it, talked about it. You know, especially with the way times are right now. I don't think you're ever going to see single level games. I think you'll always see games that, you know, have at least one ramp on it. Even if it's only one ramp, um, this makes the game seem fuller and seem bigger. Um, you know, if you don't if you don't have like a ramp or other three dimensional stuff on a the game, then it's it's definitely less curb appeal. And, um, you know, you try and sell that into a basement or whatever, and people are going to say, oh, there's nothing on that game. I mean, why would I want this thing when I can have, you know, this solar game, you know, from five or ten years ago that has, like, you know, 80 ramps on it. So I don't think you're ever going to see, you know, my guess is that you're going to see a decided reduction in in terms of the amount of stuff that's on playfields going, you know, going ahead.
1: All right, well, thank you for those questions. Let's see if I can get somebody else here. Hold on a sec. Hi, welcome to TopCast. Can you hear me?
0: Yes, I can. Uh, what's your question for Keith? question is just, first off, thanks so much for the great design, Keith, on these lovely games. I have many of them in my basement, and, you know, uh, your your uh, Simpsons, Lord of the Rings. I could go on forever on, on the great design.
2: Thanks.
0: Um... The question is, I you know, I had to walk away for one second. You were just starting to talk about CSI. I was just curious about your latest game. The last thing I kind of heard was that you didn't like the theme, and I kind of understand that part. I guess the question was a little more specific about, you know, the programming and designing and it. You guys may have gotten into this. If you did, I apologize because I had to walk away. Do you feel that you were able to finish
2: this? Do you feel that the game in general is a fun and good game to play and has
0: nice design?
2: Well, again, my influence on the game was relatively limited. You know, I did a relatively small portion of the work compared to other people. So, um in terms of where the game is at, I mean it's it's largely done. Um, I don't know if it's hundred percent done or not yet, but um I mean, you know, most of the, the features that were planned for the game are are already in the game. Um but, you know, I can since since I wasn't you know um, particularly you know in, important in the scope of this game you know I I don't really have a feeling as far as whether or not I feel it's you know what I would have I mean no matter what everyone everyone would have done something different with each game you okay. know um, so I you know the part that I did you know I'm, I'm I think is fun and I'm relatively happy with, but in the grand scheme of things, it's, you know, it's a relatively small part of the game, I think, so. Um,
0: okay. Yeah, I was just curious because it you had Lawler and your name were thrown up there on it a lot.
2: Be, it was to kind of yeah, clarify my involvement yeah. with, uh, you know, how much involvement I actually had in the game.
0: Okay. Okay, great.
1: Thanks. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Do you think that is Stern, if they got involved in gaming, you know, making slots or packy slows or, or whatever, do you think that would help or hurt things?
2: I don't know enough about what's involved in in starting up a, you know, a whole new gaming company. I mean, you know, Williams was a publicly traded company that had a bunch of resources, you know, from, you know, the, the heyday of pinball success in the early 90s. So they had a lot of money where they could, you know, start getting into that market. Um I mean, when you're talking about reducing your your overhead cost just in terms of salaries by like thirty five percent, or you know, cutting it down to thirty five percent of what it originally was, you know, you're definitely not gonna have, you know, any capital to start going down a different route, you know, like you know, starting a whole another um line of games or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I just you know it's you know as unfortunate as it is, it you know worked for Williams. I mean, pinball
2: financed
1: the slot division for many years. You know when it started out in the early '90s, and then you know basically overtook them and and you know more or less closed pinball because the slots got so successful. I, you know, I just.
2: You know, I, I just throwing an idea out. Someone somewhat... to do that would have been in the in the mid two thousands, around the time where Lord of the Rings was uh, being produced originally, right? And the company, you know, had a you know had a bunch of money that it could have you know reinvested, and you know, if if you really wanted to expand, that would have been the time to do it. Um, even as it was, you know, the company probably should have spent more of an effort in shoring up its uh, its you know, for example like its prototyping ability. I mean, you know, when Stern starts up a new design, you know, everything that that gets put into a game gets sent out to a vendor. There's no there's no lab or anything like that to get um you know, to to get to get a play field laid out and see how it shoots. I mean you have to get if you have a layout you have to get everything designed which is a three to four week process then you have to get it out to all your vendors, and, you know, they have to prototype parts. So you're waiting another two to four weeks to get those parts back. And then you finally build up a play field, which takes another week or two after that. And then then you're just shooting, like, flat rails and stuff. You know, you don't even... You haven't even bothered to to tool ramps or anything like that yet. So it's just a very trying process trying to get new games developed over there and the business probably could have really benefited from, you know, making an making an effort to to make it easier to prototype pieces so that software could actually get some time to work on a game instead of the mechanical department, you know the mechanical department treating their their end of treating their time to be done at game production start instead of, you know, six months before production is supposed to start so that we can, you know, work on a play field that is what is gonna be, you know, produced down the line down the line.
1: Alright, we got a we got another caller. Hi, uh, what's your first name and uh what's your question for Keith?
2: Uh Vince. And my
0: question for Keith is what were the best toys that were costed out of a game that you worked on?
2: Hmm that is a good question. Um, you know, most you know they're they're generally treated as as pretty important, and you know, ultimately, I think most of them made it into the game. The only one that I can think of offhand was this device on World Poker Tour, which we eventually um, wound up calling the iceberg. Um, it was kind of this thing that had four quadrants to it. And like one quadrant had a uh it was it envisioned a spinny disc that had four quadrants and and all the way down the thing was flushed the play field. And then the disc came up and revealed, you know, one of four quadrants. Each quadrant did its own thing. One of them could lock a ball, one of them was some targets you could shoot at. One of them I think was like a little loop or something. I don't even remember what the fourth one was. But um but that thing it was a gigantic mech that probably cost one hundred and fifty to two hundred dollars to, to put into a game, which is just an absolutely insane amount of cost. Um but, you know, it would have solved the problem of poker not really having something up the middle to advance the flop turn river, which I think the, the game really needed instead of um having to do it by shooting the ramps. Okay. One one toy, one toy that I've heard about, but I'm not sure if this is a, a bogus rumor or not, was that there was some sort of a tuning fork in Family Guy. Did that actually exist or not?
1: Yeah, where the captive where the captive balls were.
2: Never like that. I mean, the the only thing that that Family Guy had was um, was that the captive balls originally had uh, piezo switches in them, which are basically vibration sensors. Oh, so, so there was. You know, each of the each of the captive balls had one, so that the ball itself, the 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 front ball, could register hits, and then there would be one captive ball behind it that would switch back and forth. Um, those were eventually determined to be too unreliable, like literally the day the game went into initial production. So um, those things got taken out of the game, and uh, the posts installed in between, and and a captive ball behind. Each of the two um, stationary balls. Thanks. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think the tuning fork was the 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 piezo switches that that you mentioned. That okay, was, that could yeah, be. Yeah, it was like a a, a tuning fork style s- um, a switch to register. Yeah, like you right. said, the, the ball hits. Yeah. So, how often does that happen where something it comes that close to being in production and then is pulled out literally when the game is starting a run?
2: That is pretty unusual. Usually you figure that out um pretty well in advance. I mean, I I will say that there have been there have been significant changes made um the best recent example of this that I can remember um is is on batman the the ramp up the middle of the game was really really horrible. I mean it was a completely terrible shot um it it just was not any fun to make at all. It was not any good to shoot and myself and especially Lyman, since he was the one you know programming the game um you know said multiple times that this shot is not any good and needs to be fixed so Nothing happens to it, nothing happens to it, nothing happens to it. Then about a week before it goes into production, Gary starts flipping the game and says, you know, hey, you can't shoot this ramp. And and Miami's like, yeah, I know, I've been saying something about it for two months. So all of a sudden, you know, everyone, you know, gets their butts in gear and, and you know, redesigns the ramp so that you can actually, you know, make it up to the upper play field and that kind of thing
1: how i mean how much involvement did gary have in in actual design or play field or in anything really i mean when it comes right down to it
2: um you know up front you know we would uh you know have meetings and and make pitches and stuff like that um you know there there might be something said there usually what happened is it came really late in the process after you spent you know you spent anywhere from, you know, three to nine months working on your game, and then all of a sudden it was determined, oh my god, this sucks, we gotta change it. And, uh, that, that happened on Lord quite a bit. It's really bent me out of shape on the time I was working on that. Um
1: Why, what was determined that sucked?
2: <laughs> well, the main thing was the, you know, the tower, when you shot into it, shook, but it didn't come down, because I wanted it to come down at a certain time, so. So that was changed so that it came down like every so often when you shot it up in the uh the upper tower up there. Um the Balrog coming out the so called consolation Balrog. Um but there were a bunch of other things too, like they were put into into the uh test game that we had to try and keep the ball up in the bumpers instead of having it um loop around or something like that. And uh and I, I don't know, there were about three or four different play field tweaks that occurred on that game um, that I said, you know, you don't want to do this because of this reason. You don't want to do that because of this reason. And and every single thing that they tried, they eventually came to the conclusion that I told them for the reason that I told them. <laughs> so, you know, it was just a very frustrating experience. I mean, one, one thing that I think uh, that happened a lot is that the two people there that had the most experience of, in terms of playing pinball and, and knowing the history of pinball were Lyman and myself. And we, you know, our playing experience—we've we, just played a lot of pinball because we like it, and you know, that's what we did before we came to work in the industry. Um, you know, if you if you know if you have this vast information about why stuff is good or why stuff is bad. You know, and we tell you something is good or bad for a certain reason, then then you should probably listen to us, you know, and not go ahead and design what you're going to design anyway, and then wind we'll up changing it because you find out it sucks when we told you that like two months ago. So you know, it's very frustrating from that perspective, um, you know, just not being listened to as much as we felt we should have probably been listened to.
1: No, so Gary didn't really. I mean, it was Gary hard to work for?
2: At times. At times, not. I mean, you know, I think every place you work for, you have your ups and downs. And, you know, I. Lord was actually a low point for me personally um, in terms of, you know, the amount of fun I was having while working there. Um, but, you know, everything else, I was, you know, I was relatively you know, not in too bad a shape.
1: All right, well, cool. Is there anything that I forgot to ask or anything you'd like to add?
2: Um, not too much. I mean, you know, I wish them the best of luck. I, you know, I just don't know how successful they're going to wind up being. Um, I, it's, times are tough right now, and, you know, I just don't know if the, the people that are there are gonna be enough to get all the work done that needs to be done in order to, you know, to move games forward.
1: Well things will have to go slower, I guess.
2: Well you would think so, but I mean, you know, really though, you need you need to move faster because you need if you're only selling, you know, a few hundred or a few you know you know, if you're selling like around a thousand of a game, then you need more different models um in order to uh in order to keep your volume up i mean you know so you need you need to hit four games a year although i don't know how they can possibly do that in order to uh you know keep their business viable um you know if they get back to the point where they're selling several thousand of a game at a time then obviously you only need to do between you know two and three a year. But since that's not the case right now it probably won't be for a long time uh, I don't think that I don't think they're gonna have a whole lot of um, I, I think they're gonna it's gonna be some trying times that's for sure
1: you think that um you know it's just gonna drive Lyman crazy I mean because basically he's the only programmer they have now right
2: well again you know line's a programmer too um, but certainly Lyman is the one left at the company that has the most Um, pinball playing experience Um, so you know it's good that he's still there and you know they definitely need someone like him Um, you know I just uh, hope they listen to him enough
1: alright well thank you Keith I really do appreciate your time and I appreciate you coming on TopCast it's really I've been trying to get you on for a while
2: yep yep, I know I just couldn't do it before so
1: yeah you mean what Were, were, were your hands actually tied before, where you couldn't do it?
2: Yeah, I couldn't. Uh, I was basically told not to go on and not to, you know, say too much about, you know, it, it was just felt that I might, you know, give away too many secrets or something like that, and, you know, I don't know that I would have said too much different from what I said now. I may not have been as critical of, you know, the, you know, the state of the company or whatever, but um, I certainly, you know. Like, you know, I'm not gonna give away production numbers or, you know, how how things are designed certain ways or that kind of thing, so
1: Yeah, speaking of which, why do they hold production numbers like as uh you know, a big top secret thing?
2: Um, I'm not sure the exact reason for that. Um I guess partially so you don't know how good or bad the company is doing. That might be one reason. Hmm. Um you know like if if it seems like that that hey this company's selling you know thousands and thousands of games a year, you know we could we could get in on some of that action um, you know i I think that would, um you know another part of it is you don't you don't wanna necessarily let people know when uh you know when times are really good or times are really bad um but you know when you have the the layoff and the rumors start flying um like happened this past week, I mean, obviously, you know, awards aren't going to get out. The times are pretty bad right now, so.
1: So what are you going to go and, uh, and do? What line of work are you going to kind of shoot for?
2: Um, I haven't, I mean, I have, uh, I have several prospects and, um, you know, I'm really not worried about it. So, you know, I'll be in good shape, you know, wherever I wind up, you know, landing at. Um, so, you know, sad to be out of pinball, certainly, but, um, you know, I certainly had fun for the most part, you know, doing what I was doing. Um, happy to have had the influence that I had on pinball and, uh, you know, wherever I go next, I mean, I hope to, you know, I hope to have as, as much impact as I did there. Well, cool. And well, pie in the sky, hope, but, you know.
1: I wish you the best of luck. I hope so. I wish you the best of luck and, and I'm again thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it and and I'm sure I speak for everybody in saying thank you for you know the work that you've done in the industry you've done some you know some great games and some you know some stuff that's you know that I own that's uh you know i got a lot of your, I got a lot of your stuff so you know it's it's uh, I'm sure that resonates through a lot of a lot of people that have games
2: no, thank you very much
1: all right, you take care and uh, uh you know i again. Keep in touch and uh, let us know what, uh, what happens.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if it turns out I need to come back on again sometime, I'm certainly willing or able to do that. All right, you take care.